people. Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear, the podcast. Today, our guest is Matteo, and we are going to talk about how to value infrastructure investments. And first of all, thank you so much, Matteo, for joining. Please say a few words about what you do in life and a bit what you're going to talk about uh, today. Hi, Ludo. Thanks for inviting um, I'm a managing director at Goldman Sachs, and specifically, I work in the asset management division. Uh, and within that, uh, I'm in the part that uh, uh, does alternative investments, where we have about $140 billion of assets under management across both uh, private equity and private debt. Within the equity sleeve, we have several investment strategies, including infrastructure, where I sit, but also traditional private equity, real estate, growth equity, et cetera. Um, in infrastructure, we've raised uh, over $12 billion um, over the last 15 years. And I'm responsible for both buying and selling investments in Europe and managing our portfolio companies, you know, sitting on the, bo the board. So for better or for worse, um, I've been involved with infrastructure for a long time. Um, I started 20 years ago, originally doing infrastructure financing and last 15 years doing infrastructure equity. Um, and I really like it. You know, you invest in something tangible, you contribute to the economic growth, but you can also help protect from long-term risk like climate change, for example, by investing in, in energy transition. And in terms of fund size, like what would be the size of like your latest fund in, in infrastructure? So our latest fund uh, was uh, uh, $2.5 billion. Um, we just, uh, um, you know, we're finishing investing that. Okay. And so what are the key tricks that our listener needs to know about valuing uh, valuation in general, but, but specifically about infrastructure? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, it's, uh, um, there, there's a number of things which are specific to, to infrastructure valuation, and, and we'll get to those in some details and, and with some example from real life. So we'll cover things like you know, discount rates uh, uh, that are used by different types of infrastructure investors, and rebuy IRRs, which is you know something typical of infrastructure, which you may not find in valuation of other asset classes. Uh, if you got the patience to, to listen to you know the whole conversation, uh, we'll have uh, you know some real uh, life examples taken from situation where I've worked on, um, and where I'll try to show uh, you know some of the uh, challenges doing infrastructure valuation and also things you can do to prevent those mistakes. Excellent. That sounds amazing. So is, is there like, is it the same approach for any kind of real estate investments, uh, infrastructure investments, sorry, or, or and it would be the same for real estate, um, or, or are there different type of, of, of infrastructures I need to be aware of that would have like differences in methodology or things like that? There are different types and I'll try to simplify um, using sort of the jargon that the people in the industry um, use, which is similar to real estate. And so I would break it down in four categories of uh, risk return profiles, super core, core, core plus and value add. Super core investors uh, target the lowest business, uh, the lowest risk businesses with a levered IRR, um, call it of uh, six to 9%. Core investors would target nine to 11%. Core plus are usually, you know, 11 to 13% and value add, you know, 13 to 16%. And that would be in today's environment, right? Like given where the interest rates are and where the prices are. 
So some people are still targeting 13% plus, which seems quite a bit, which seems punchy. That's right. Um, sort of in this scale, you know, I would have in mind, a, you know, a private equity investor at sort of 20% plus, which maybe in today's environment, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the case. Sometimes, you know, you see private equity going lower and getting closer to infrastructure, which is uh, happening more and more. And, and these are gross of fees, right? So, so that's probably an important point as well. That's right. That's right. And those, those are the gross figures that, that a fund uh, would target. And they're also the gross figure that a direct investor would target. Um, generally, I would say, you know, the lower the IRR, the more of uh, the returns come from yield rather than from capital appreciation. And also the more you have direct investor as opposed to fund. Broadly speaking, you know, the funds are, you know, some core, but core plus and value add. Uh, and the direct investors, you know, they tend to be in the, the lowest risk uh, um, sub-asset classes because there is less scope for a manager to add value uh, in those lower risk assets. Yeah, it, it, I think it's not so much of a risk. I think it's because they think that this is simple enough for them to do it directly. And so they don't need to pay Goldman Sachs to, to do something that is seen as simple enough. And so then they just buy it directly, right? So these are like the pension funds buying directly a super core because why would they pay someone else for, for, for something they, they can handle? But when it comes to value add, then you guys have something special, some specific knowledge, et cetera. And so they have to delegate that. They have to outsource these kind of investments to specialized managers like you. That's right. Obviously, you know, this is sort of uh, in general terms, when, when uh, you invest in uh, certain times of the cycle, when things get difficult, then even a, you know, a core, a super core asset can get uh, tricky. But, you know, broadly speaking, there is definitely less requirement to have a hands-on asset manager, uh, you know, to invest in, uh, um, in, in something which is very low risk, like could be a, a water distribution company, um, as opposed to, you know, a complex asset, which perhaps needs to be built and fits in the value add category. And this is where it's a bit different from LBOs or, or venture capital, et cetera, in terms of valuations is that in real estate and infrastructure, you, you, you get a sense a bit of where the asset is in terms of risk profile. And then you, you have a target rate and that's your discount rate. And you're going to do like quasi standard MBA uh, thing of like discounting the cash flows with a discount rate, right? So you, you have a sense of what the risk of this investment is. You have a discount rate that corresponds to it. You have done a lot of the work. While for venture capital or buyout, it's, it's pretty difficult to do these sorts of things. So, so this is probably what one first big characteristic of doing valuations in this context. True. Um, you, you look at the sort of target business, uh, um, and generally you self-select. If you are, a, you know, a fund investor like we are, you know, we are GP managing sort of core plus value add uh, risk profile. We kind of self-select the businesses that we look at uh, so that they fit uh, that, uh, that that category. And so we look at the targets where we kind of have a sense of what the return is. We just have to within the range, we just have to pick the, the right level uh, that we think is appropriate. And then we use that as the, as, you know, the rate to discount the cash flows. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, we make an assumption on, on exit value. We do use multiples as well. 
um, they are, um, you know, a quick and easy. By multiples, you mean comparables, right? So what, what people would use quite a lot in other sectors. So comparable companies, financial ratios, and to compare with theirs. Exactly. EV, EBITDA multiple would be typical. Uh, it would be, you know, a rub multiple for regulated utilities. Uh, but, you know, they are, they're just a quick and easy indicator and a comparator. Uh, but obviously, it's not the, the core. The, the key valuation tool is the discounted cash flow analysis. Yeah. And infrastructure has very much with tool. The other difference, I think, compared to venture capital and especially leverage buyout is that you have also a longer horizon and it also ties in with the fact that your financial models typically look, lo look at a longer time period. So when you're doing projected cash flows, you sometimes go like seven years, maybe 10 and, and, and that also is a big difference with, with leverage buyout where you have like a three, four years plan and then you need to make assumptions about where the world would be in three, four years. Why here you seem to be using longer horizons usually, no? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, our investment horizon would generally be seven to 10 years. Um, but um, what is interesting is that we always try to forecast our business for, for longer than that because one of uh, the ways of estimating the exit value as opposed to just applying you know, a, a multiple on, on an EBITDA or, an, or another metric is to use the rebuy IRR concept, uh, which is basically saying, what is going to be the return target, the discount rate used by the new buyer at the time of exit, which will have to reflect the risk of the business at that point in time, but it also requires having a set of cash flows from the exit uh, until a later date, you know, call it at least, you know, 10 or 15 years longer, if not more, to, to apply the discount rate on those cash flows. So, so you don't quite, yeah, you don't quite do the infinity formula we teach MBAs, which is, you know, like at exit, you know, this investment will grow at 2% forever and ever. And then here is the number, right? You don't quite do that. You do this reinvestment IR saying after seven years, there's somebody who's going to pick this up for another seven years. What is this seven years looking like? So if you don't change the risk profile of your investment, so if it's like super core and it stays super core, it's the same discount rate for the rebuy re IR as your discount rate. But if you change the risk profile, you have to take that into account. Um, is there other things we need to be aware of, of difficulties of like, because you, you, you can not really even say what's going to happen next year. So how do you know what's going to happen in seven or 10 years, 15, that seems tricky. Well, I, you know, what I would say is that if you're really doing sort of infrastructure investment and you're selecting the targets so that they have good infrastructure characteristics, they should be by definition, those targets, they should have significantly higher than average ability to predict cash flows, because that's exactly what it, investing in infrastructure is about, having something which has you know, a lower, a lower risk profile and therefore a better ability to forecast. Uh, I think you made the right point that if you're not changing the risk uh, profile of, of the business, then the discount rate should be the same. The rebuy IRR should be the same as the target uh, discount rate initially. Those, those uh, two things should be consistent. However, for a fund, particularly you know, a, a core plus and value add fund, a lot of the investment thesis generally in infrastructure is about de-risking an investment. Okay. So you buy something that initially is core plus or value add, you try to work on it to reduce the risk so that you can sell it as a core or even better as a I super see. core. And then the, the basic intuition here that you know, some people often get wrong is that if you de-risk, the price will be higher, right? So if you bring the risk down, it means the discount rate 
is lower, which increases the price of the asset, right? Exactly. So that's that should be you know how one way you know to create value. Obviously, the other way is you know to grow the business and and grow the EBITDA and have a bigger company at exit. But uh, de-risking is sort of a big part of the theme for a fund investor. It's probably less the case if you buy super core. There's not much you can de-risk. Yeah, it's already really the question there is, you know, are the the interest rates at exit uh, in seven or ten years going to be as low as they are today? And I think that's that's a big question. Yeah, is I was it- going to bring this up actually because the, the, you you have these target rates, and I said it also when you presented them. I said, well, it's in this current environment where basically the library is at zero, the base rate is at zero. But if you were anticipating by looking at the yield curve, maybe that in 10, 15 years, the consensus is that interest rates would have gone up by 2% or so, you could have a case for saying the, the rebuy IR would be this target now, even if I don't change the risk, plus 2% because I expect the interest rates to go up. Yes. I think generally it's fair to say that the infrastructure is uh, uh, it's inversely correlated to interest rates. Valuation and therefore you should do that if you think interest rates are going to be higher. Yeah, and 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 the classic case of de-risking, I guess, in your world and and trying to uh, use some classic infrastructure vocabulary, which I sometimes get wrong, is like this greenfield versus brownfield, right? So I guess greenfield is is if I remember right, is when something is green, so it was like it's kind of new, so it doesn't it like there is no assets in place and. And so you would you would do a greenfield investment, but then by the time you exit it, it has become a brownfield investment. So everything is in is in place, and therefore then it is a lower risk. Did I get that right, or, or I inverted green greenfield and brownfield? No, no, that, that's spot on. Uh, uh, you know, greenfield investments uh, are um, you know when you build something which you know doesn't exist and uh, and so doesn't have cash flows, while you know a brownfield would be. When uh, when the asset is up and running, it generate cash flows. It's a lot harder, uh, and you know goes without saying. It's a lot higher risk uh, uh, to do something greenfield, even if uh, you're building, you know, the most sort of obvious infrastructure, like you know a road. Um, you know, it's clearly a piece of infrastructure. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, forecasting the traffic. Um, it's it's very hard, and so we have a great example in the UK, or a terrible example in the UK, with the M6 project, right? Where where it 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 has been pretty terrible. Um, yeah, so- yeah, there's plenty of example. I mean, those are the infrastructure assets that, that go wrong. When you buy a road that is brownfield, yeah, the traffic can move. We've seen uh, the biggest shock ever, you know, with the pandemic in 2020. But the reality is that it is significant. The band. Uh, where you know traffic can move is significantly narrower, yeah. but it's when you're building new, it's it's very hard. I don't think necessarily the greenfield risk gets priced in the most accurate way, but that's that's a separate and much longer discussion. Yeah, excellent. And maybe it, it it's always easiest to to think with an example. So, do you have a deal you 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 worked on that you could bring as an example where you could walk us through how you valued it? Yeah, I have a couple, but let, let me start from one, uh, uh, which is a company that we bought in, in 2010 in Spain, you know, called Redexis. Uh, um, it's a gas distribution and transmission company. So it, it is a regulated utility. It, it owns the gas pipelines that you would find underground in the street. The company doesn't sell the gas, just owns the pipelines and gets paid a fee by the supply companies, which are those that are selling the gas for, for letting uh, transport uh, um so three things at the time made the investments interesting for us. 
first, uh, unlike the UK, where gas pipelines are nearly ubiquitous, in 2010, only 28% of Spanish premises were passed by a gas grid, meaning that there was a huge addressable market uh, to build in, and the government was keen to incentivize private investments to do so. So there was a big growth opportunity. Second, the transaction was a carve out, meaning it was the sale of a division of the, of the seller, who was a large energy company called Endesa, mostly focused on electricity rather than gas. So in other words, the target had, had suffered from lack of attention from top management. And so there was scope to make it better. And number three, the company was in Spain and it was 2010, the financial crisis was pretty tough at the time, meaning there was less competition to buy that company. So from a vintage perspective, you knew that you were buying relatively well. So if you fast forward eight years, which was the length of our um, investment, we did what we expected to do and even more. We deployed a lot of CapEx in that white space. Can you, can you say what, what de deploying a lot of CapEx would mean so we built a lot of pipelines in the portion, the 72% of Spain that did not have a gas connection. So it was not that trivial an investment. So you, you did acquire this company, but they, one of your value add is the fact that you had deep pockets, meaning that you could then draw on some more capital to invest more into the company to, to put more pipelines and the like. That's right. And so just to put it simply, you know, back to your sort of greenfield brownfield terminology, what we built was a brownfield business because it was already up and running, but we had identified a very significant greenfield opportunity that was attached to it. So we were able to use cash flow that was generated by the existing business plus additional capital that we put in to expand. And you know, over the period, we ended up increasing the EBITDA by 2.5 times. But, so but we've some add on acquisition, so not just organically, right? So We, we did, yes, uh, two thirds was organic, and one third was inorganic. So we, we did add-on acquisitions of small businesses, which- So that's uh, a big increase in EBITDA for organic, right? Yeah, there was a big uh, big increase, uh, um, essentially linked to big to, to more CapEx, just more investment. Just and you had, and, 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 and your margins, did they also go up or? Yeah, the margin, we were able to increase it from 59% to 75% EBITDA what, what? margin. What, what kind of margin is that? It's like, like, like you had margins of 75%? It's a good margin. That's what the, you would have generally in infrastructure, high EBITDA margin. Um, I know compared to private equity, it's enormous. And the reason why you it have- is. Even Elsevier doesn't dare to have such margins on their products. Yeah, well, the, the reason is that uh, you know, infrastructure is very asset intensive. So there's a lot of CapEx uh, um, and, uh, and therefore the, margin, um, the margins are very high. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, combining all those things, you know, we, we had a, a phenomenal CEO uh, who was able to run the business more efficiently. Um, and uh, um, so we, uh, we did you, did... sorry, did you solve the CEO? Because one of the theme is a bit to try to see how people add value. So did you source the CEO yourself or was the CEO in place and you were just lucky that there was a good CEO in that company? No, we, we sourced it ourselves. Uh, um, okay. so that, that's it, thanks to your network then. That, that's one of the benefits of being Goldman Sachs. Yeah, we uh, within, uh, um, I want to say probably seven months into the investment, uh, um, we, we knew since the beginning that the management team was good, but it was a team of engineers uh, with less of a... Never go, never, never let engineer run anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, let's say, you know, fantastic from a, you know, an asset management perspective, but, you know, less with a value creation mindset. Uh, you know, the, the pipelines were of excellent quality. Sometimes you'd argue even too high, maybe, you know, a bit gold plated. But um, I think we needed to have, you know, somebody with, uh, with sort of a, an economic and value creation mindset. Yeah, that's great. And that's what the new CEO brought. He, he sort of slowly brought on board a number of, uh, uh, of other people to help him. And, um, you know, the results were, were pretty amazing. And on top, uh, you know, we were able to do a refinancing along the way, um, slightly higher leverage, which, which was very accretive. And then we exited the business uh, by selling it to direct investor, a consortium of uh, three direct investors, two pension funds, and, and a sovereign investor, which had a, a long-term uh, uh, approach and therefore, um, you know, used the, you know, slightly lower uh, discount rate yeah uh, so classic infrastructure exit like we said you started with something that that well did trivial but was not completely trivial because you could expand it so it was kind of value add or not quite and then but you could exit it as like super core or core uh at least and then and that that enabled you to get some more money thanks to the change in discount rate indeed um so do you want to walk us a bit through through how you approach the valuation of that of that asset we are we are running a bit <laughs> out of time. So maybe we 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 uh, we go to the valuation part. Yeah. Um, so um, you know the, the, the valuation was uh, uh, you know what uh, what we explained. So we had you know the uh, discounted cash flows for our investment horizon, and then we had uh, uh, you know the exit value, which was estimated with uh, the um, rebuy um, IRR um, methodology. I think. Uh, um, the uh, the thing to, you know to always pay, pay particular attention is is the rebuy and the the, the exit uh, and because it's very easy it's probably the areas where it's the easiest to make a mistake and but uh, here did you you need to know at the beginning that you're going to exit it to a direct investor as a core plus investment so you need to know that plan from the beginning right so you need to have worked it out from the beginning otherwise you don't know what to do as a this is where it's interesting like I often emphasize that to my students you need to do these exercises in, 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 um, in a coherent way. So if you are going to have as a strategy what you just described, then that's going to influence your valuation because your exit strategy is going to be influenced by your value-add strategy. And therefore, your valuation is tied in to what you plan to do with this investment, right? And it's not like one team is doing the valuation in isolation to the team who's doing uh, the, the strategy. So here, you know, or you feel that, that there's a good likelihood that you're going to exit it as a core plus investment. And then, then that gives you a right answer for the reinvestment IR. I, I think that's right. And that's where it helps, you know, for a financial investor, you just have one team that is across everything. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, a corporate buyer might not have that. They might have a much bigger team involved in an acquisition and you would have the M&A team, which is doing the financial analysis and the uh, you know, operational team that would do, you know, the business plan. Um, and so you might have that risk of, uh, you know, lack of coordination between the two. As, as a financial investor, uh, you, you've got a pretty lean team uh, that is just across all the different things. So uh, you're, you're spot on. Uh, your, you, your exit strategy is influenced by what you do during, you know, the life of the investments and what your plan is. And so if you, if you plan to de-risk it, uh, to position it better for exit, then uh, then it, it's all consistent, and you can uh, you can underwrite to some extent uh, a better exit. Um, 
what happens and what was the case in sort of that Spanish investment, uh, because we were buying in you know, a time of crisis, generally at that point, the, the word is conservative because you are given what's going on, people are influenced by uh, you know, the, the dynamics. And so you end up being more conservative uh, on the very long-term forecast. Uh, when things are going very well, you know, think of 2007, to some extent, you know, think of 2019 to uh, people and the environment tend to be more optimistic about the, the very long-term cash flows. And that's how, you know, people justify higher valuation. Now, I remember looking at a tour road company in 2007, uh, which uh, uh, where there was the, the, long t- uh, the long-term traffic forecast was 3.5% in perpetuity, which, you know, the business at the time was growing 8% per annum. So it didn't feel that high, um, but it turned out to be completely wrong. And when you do 30 year forecast and your, uh, you know, growth rate uh, is probably, you know, twice what, uh, what it should be, the difference in valuation becomes enormous. Yeah. And, and so we said earlier that uh, we use DCF, so, you know, net present value with this discount rate, et cetera, for valuation infrastructure, because we feel we can forecast the, the cash flow. So let me ask you the question uh, a bit cheekily, is that when you wrote this model in tw- tw- 2010 and you projected the cash flows, now you sold the business, uh, I, I, I guess, what, yeah, what you did. And so did you get this cash flow projection pretty accurately or, or, or were they off? I think the cash flow projection, the investment I told you, you know, was about eight years. We were, you know, not not too far. Where we got it wrong was after eight years, we had forecasted the business to have very little growth. In reality, when we sold the business, the business was forecasted to have a lot more growth, and that was actually very beneficial because we were not counting on the ability to continue to grow, and therefore we sold the stream of cash flows that was much higher in value than we had anticipated. Okay, no, that's great. Um, and would you have another example where you couldn't quite do this? So here we saw, it, it feels like a stand a textbook example of infrastructure valuation and deal. Do you have a case that wouldn't be as standard? Um, I have a case of uh, that is sort of less standard, um, which is uh, uh, you know an investment that we still own. Uh, we made it in 2018. It's a company called City Fiber. Uh, what they do, they build full fiber networks around the UK. So for those that uh, uh, like the telecom jargon, uh, we build FTTH network fiber to the home. When we're looking to buy um, City Fiber in in 2018, uh, there was only five percent of the UK that was covered by full fiber. So pretty, pretty much nothing. While you know, 100% of the country is covered by a copper network, the, the traditional telephone lines that you would get from British Telecom. And, and you know that the future is, is about you know, getting everybody connected to full fiber. The government has a you know, very ambitious target to do this. So, so somewhat similarly to my example um, of Redexis, uh, uh, there was a very large growth opportunity. The, biz- the difference was that uh, in Redexis, you had a greenfield and a brownfield component together. In the case of City Fiber, uh, the EBITDA was close to zero when we bought it. So it was pretty much entirely, uh, entirely greenfield, but the company was listed and had a market cap of 375 million pounds, give or take. 
in anticipation of the value that would have come from the future opportunity. Um, and it was about a hundred million pound of cash on balance sheet. Um, so that's, but that's pretty wide, right? So you're going there, this, this company is already listed. We like to think at least academics do that the stock market is not completely stupid. So, you know, if I put the valuation at, at 400 million is that it's in the ballpark of right, including, you know, all the growth prospects and, and the like. So the market is not dumb. So even though they're making no money, the market is saying it's still worth 400 million. And you guys go there and are going to pay a premium. Usually it's 30, 40% to delist it, which is a huge premium to recoup 40% value. You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. So you're going to put 40% extra on the table to get this, this company off the stock market, which is already valued pretty highly. It's 400 million for an, a, a business not making any money. So how did you come up with a justification? So here's a different setup, a justification that, well, the stock market is saying this is worth 400 million. We are going to argue it's worth 500 million. And here is why. It's kind of like a reverse exercise. Now the valuation is fixed. Now you need to play with your Excel model to justify why would you pay such a crazy price that you know the market is saying is worth less. Yeah, and you, you can imagine that we had a pretty robust discussion uh, at our investment committee when we asked for approval to spend more than 500 million pounds to buy a company that was making no EBITDA in the infrastructure <laughs> business. So um, yeah, it was, it was pretty tough, uh, but, but you're, you're right. You know, In general, the market... Uh, should pricing correctly. But I'd say in general, um, I find that is less and less the case for businesses that, that are very hard to forecast. Because it, it was hard for us to come uh, to, to do evaluation of City Fiber, let alone for the shareholders with very limited public information on the company. A business that it's all about growth in the future where the management is not telling you those forecasts, how, how can you apply the right valuation? So the market, was kind of basic, basically valuing it on, you know, a good field. There were, you know, three or four brokers that were co covering the company with, uh, you know, I remember uh, a range of uh, price targets that was incredibly wide from, you know, a, a total sell to a buy that was, you know, three times uh, the share price at that point in time. So an enormous range kind of showing the challenge for, public market investor to value a greenfield infrastructure company. So what we thought was that uh, um, it, we liked the opportunity. Fundamentally, we thought that fiber was going to be the future. There was going to be a big push for it. There was going to be a lot of demand because you know it would have become you know, uh, more important both for consumer, for businesses to have you know, better quality uh, connectivity. Nobody was forecasting COVID and the big push in digital infrastructure demand that has- Yeah, this was like bingo for you. That, yeah, for us, yes, it was a push. But the reality is that we were already betting on that trend to happen, probably at slower pace. COVID just accelerated that tremendously. So we, we came up with our set, of, uh, our set of cash flows and we apply you know, our discount rate and then we thought, you know, we're developing a business from scratch. So there's greenfield risk. We need to get paid for that. But once it's up and running, uh, this company should be very valuable. It should become, you know, the fourth utility. So if you think- So even, even though it was like a venture capital style investment, you still felt that you could say what kind of cash flows would come out of it. And you guys still felt more comfortable approaching it from an NPV DCF perspective than the usual VC perspective, which would have been- let's take a multiple and add to it and 
That's right. Uh, the challenge for that is that, you know, people would still look at uh, the EV EBITDA multiple acquisition and that made no sense. Uh, yeah. And so that was, you know, explaining that, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't do it. It, it wasn't, you know, an, an easy discussion, but ultimately uh, you know, the, the committee recognized the, the value of the opportunity uh, and, and that it was, you know, fair, um, fairly remunerated for that risk of developing. Um, I think, you know, with, with hindsight, we were prudent at the time. Uh, the opportunity that, uh, uh, that we ended up finding was much larger than we had anticipated. So the company will, will grow a lot more because it will build a lot more fiber than we were comfortable underwriting at the time. So it, it went in the right direction. Um, I think, uh, you know, we still have to see what uh, the outcome is going to be and only time will tell. But I feel pretty good that, uh, uh, that the direction of travel is, is the right one. Well, thank you so much, Matteo. We are way out of time, but it was totally worth it. It was really awesome. So thank you so much for, for, for joining. Uh, this was Infrastructure Investment Valuations Laid Bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao, everyone. And thank you again, Matteo.